Before we start the podcast, I need to give an unfortunate update. One of the authors we chose for our book club, Jean Vanier, was a friend to a great many people in the church community, including our guest. He was recently discovered to be a sexual predator, abusive toward women he worked with in his community. And in this podcast, you'll hear us speak so highly of his work. It was a painful decision to figure out if we should simply delete any reference to Jean Vanier. But the reason not to seems to us here at the Everything Happens Project to be more compelling. The cause was beautiful. The work, the support, and love of those living with disabilities is the work that cannot be forgotten. So in erasing Jean Vanier, we run the risk of failing to uphold the significance of the people he worked with. You're going to love our guest today, John Swinton, but know that we're all more than a little heartbroken that one of the most impressive institutions who embodied these values is rocked by the news that their founder was not nearly as impressive as the work itself. I hope you'll listen in. I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. I've always been obsessed with time, but I think I'm getting worse. Whenever I think about cancer, all I picture is a clock. Tick, tick, and then I start to feel a little frantic. How can I get everything done? When is my next scan? And then I look at my son, my beautiful snake-obsessed sidekick, and I worry, am I doing enough? Shouldn't he have already started learning piano? Why is this going by so quickly? Tick, tick. And then, sorry, mom and dad, if you're listening to this, but the fragility of my own health makes me completely obsessed with my parents now that they're getting older. Have we taken all the trips we need to take? Have we said what we needed to say? Tick. See, I'm a monster. And the weird thing is, time isn't fixed. Time isn't just hours and minutes. It can be a blink or an eternity. Ask any woman who's had a baby. Oh, you know exactly how many hours you were in labor. Or if you're with your mom who has dementia or your son with autism who loves his rituals, these are different clocks altogether. We keep time differently depending on our season of life or our personalities or our experiences, but also depending on our abilities and disabilities, our possibilities and our limitations. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. John Swinton, he is an ordained minister and a professor in practical theology and pastoral care at the University of Aberdeen. He is a prolific author and leading expert in the field of disability theology, as well as the founder of the Center for Spirituality, Health, and Disability. John, I'm so grateful that we're speaking today. No, well, thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to it. I'm so curious that you were not always a theologian or a minister but you were a mental health nurse for 16 years. How did that draw you into what you do now? That's true, I was. And uh, it's, it's really strange because when you look back at your life and try to work out what God wants from you, it, it very often makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so the way I kind of try to make sense of my history and my present is that for most of my life, my nursing life, I kind of hung around with people who see the world differently. So I spent a lot of time with people with mental health challenges, people with intellectual disabilities, people with dementia. And 
when you hang around with people who see the world differently for long enough, you start to see the world differently yourself. So that kind of shaped and formed the way in which I, I look at things and the way in which I understand myself and the world. And when I came into theology, which should have been, I don't know, 1989 probably, early 90s, that became my place of vocation where I began to think, well, you know, I've done all these things and I've thought about these things. How do I understand that within the perspective of what God is and who human beings are before God? And so my formation turned into my vocation. Yeah. Uh, and so these two things are, although they're kind of really different and, and sometimes dissonant, are absolutely necessary because it means that as a theologian, I bring certain questions to the table that perhaps if I'd just come through school or had come through a different route, I wouldn't have been asking them. So mysterious as, as journeys <laughs> are, when you're in the thick of them, uh, actually, I think there's, there's some continuity between these nursing years and my theological years. Well, you do seem really focused on these big questions, not just who we are when we're well, but then who we are when we aren't. I... I find that people tell me about their fears a lot. And one of the most common ones I hear is people saying that they're really afraid that they're going to lose who they are, mm. whether it's to illness or injury or disability. Why do you think yeah. that's so frightening to people? I think it's difficult. I mean, you see it particularly sharply in issues around brain damage and something like dementia, where people are more afraid of dementia than they are of cancer, for example. Mm. And the reason for that is exactly as you say, that uh, people think that this particular condition takes away your identity. Uh, and the reason that we, th we think that way is because we, we assume that the way in which we make sense of ourselves is a personal narrative. Yeah. It's something that we do by ourselves. And so when people use language like, you know, he or she's not the person they used to be, what they're really saying is that they no longer can tell the story they used to tell. And so you get this idea of the self as an autobiographical self. But as long as you can tell your story of where you've been, where you are, and where you're going to be in the future, then you are who you are. But if you can no longer tell that story, then you cease to be. And so people use that language, he or she is not the person that they used to be. That reminds me of um, an aging care facility that I heard of where on the doors that there were life stories about the patients written there so mm -hmm. that nurses and anyone who came in could could tell the story of who that person was beyond yeah. just like the pills and the regimen and the changing of the sheets. And uh, yeah. according to the people who worked there, it really, it really shaped how they cared for those people and maybe even how they loved them. It does. And I think that what that does is it gives a body a context. So, you know, as professional caregivers come in very late in somebody's story, and it's very easy for them to only see what they can, they've seen in this time of difficulty or this time of change. And what that kind of thing does is it reminds them this is a person with a history, a person who has loved many people and been loved by many people and continues to be loved by many people. Yeah. But what it also does is opens up the possibility that uh, the person is the future. Because one of the things that sometimes concerns me, particularly in relation to something like dementia, is that the assumption is that what is important is always that which is past. 
rather than that which is present or that which is to come in the future. Yeah. And so I think that kind of reminder of who you are not only locates a person as a person within a history, but also says, well, what can we do to ensure that this person has a good future, that they have possibilities, even in the midst of the difficulties that they encounter? When we're talking about people with dementia in particular, can you give me just a sense of what kind of time they live in and, and, and what it takes from people around them to live in that time with them? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing, obviously, there's no such thing as any kind of standard person with dementia. So it's, it's, yeah. you've got to be careful just not to, to tie everybody together. But because there's lots of different aspects to dementia, but if you think about it in, in the perspective of when you are in the latter stages of dementia and beginning to forget certain things and begin to forget who others are and forget who you are in some senses. You enter into a quite different way of understanding time. And so normally we think of time as, as linear and progressive, moving from one period of history to the next period of history. But when you get to that stage in your life where you're living with the dementia, that mode of time or being able to tense time, to put it in past or yeah. present or future, uh, is no longer available to you. And so the present becomes extremely important. Yeah. So being with people in the moment is really, really profoundly important, which is something that we never do. Yeah. You know, all of us are kind of driven by a particular understanding of time. We're always watching the clock or always planning for the future. It's very difficult to slow down and just find that space within the present. But that's precisely the space that you need to inhabit if you're going to be alongside people with uh, advanced dementia. And there's another, there's another interesting aspect to that. Those of us who have spent time with people with dementia, you, you have that experience, particularly if you engage in, in worship or music, where people who are oftentimes very unresponsive, yeah. when they hear uh, music or engage in worship, they come back into a, a rhythm of life that actually is sometimes very, very surprising. And of course, music takes you back to places and times and ways of being in the world yeah. and, and loves and relationships that uh, are profoundly important. Yeah. But it only uh, lasts as long as the music plays. And so the key thing there is to recognize that you need to be in that musical moment and to recognize the significance of recognizing that that will only be there for a short period of time. Yeah. And you need to celebrate that and recognize the sadness um, when that begins to go away. So I'm from Mennonite World in the plains of Manitoba. So with with folks who are a bit older, the primary language was Low German. Right. And so when we would go visit my husband's grandma in their care facility, there was always a piano out and there was always the old Low German hymns being played. And that was the mm. time of like the most beauty and like chance for people to reconnect uh, with, yeah. with aspects of their loved ones that they couldn't. It was so beautiful to hear my husband's grandma sing along when we thought that she couldn't anymore or mm -hmm. just like come alive again. And it's amazing That's how fantastic. bits of us are, are found in so many yeah. different ways. Yeah. That's amazing. Your latest book, Becoming Friends of Time, has a lovely, I would say, defense of, of thinking about the limits and gifts of time. So 
what are some of the limits of the ways that, like, I mean, I'm kind of a monster when it comes to like efficiency and schedules. <laughs> like, what are some of the limits of this way of thinking about time? You mean the, the limits of your monstrosity? Yeah, yeah. Be really specific uh, about me. That'd be so I great. Understand. But no, it's interesting because one of the things that I, I do push into in that book is the way in which time is constructed in different contexts and different cultures even. like So, you know, people walk more quickly in New York than they do in Paris because they have a different <laughs> understanding of what time is. Yeah. But theological time, or the time that God has is really interesting because... The way that St. Augustine talks about time, he's, he's, he says that uh, time is, is deeply disrupted. And you can see how much it overwhelms us sometimes, trying to keep to schedules and trying to keep to time. So much so that we end up with depression, anxiety, and, and all sorts of difficulties, but particularly within Western cultures. So Augustine, he's keen to work out you know, what God's relationship is with time. Um, because he, he thinks if God's in, implicated in time, then uh, God changes. And God can't change because he's, he's, he's changeless, in Augustine's opinion. So the way that he, he resolves that is by coming to the conclusion that time came into existence when God created the world. So time is a creature. It's something that's part of creation. Mm. Uh, and so when creation falls, time falls which is why we have so much difficulty with controlling time and with it controlling us. And the essence of what he says is that we need to redeem time and put it to its proper purposes. In other words, begin to recognize that some of the ways that we think about time in terms of punctuality and tasks may be important penultimately. No, we need to get things done. Yeah. But ultimately, time has a different purpose, a different way of uh, helping God to participate in, in God's recreation of the world in that sense. And I think claiming that back is, is really important. And that's why something I learned a lot from working alongside people with profound intellectual disabilities, for example, because you have to slow down and take time for those things that the world considers to be trivial. Yeah. Because if you're moving quickly in that context, then you'll see nothing. But if you slow down and recognize the significance of the moment and the significance of slowness in that sense, then you will see a whole lot of things that you could never see if you're uh, living a life of speed. I, I don't think I thought a lot about slowing down until I was forced to slow down. And then it was like miserably slow. It was like the, the space between scans and just the mm -hmm. inability to live in future tense forced me to notice things. But mm -hmm. that was one of the most intense educations that I've ever received in figuring out what to love. Because yeah. now there's like a weird, there's a weird slowness, especially. So I try to do this thing where every day I like notice, notice what the big moment is. And it's almost mm -hmm. always... Something hilarious my son has done where <laughs> I was trying to have a meeting, a very important meeting, and I was on my phone and he's in his little jammies and he crawled up on my lap and he, right. he looked deeply into my eyes and he whispered, it's now a good time to talk about lizards. <laughs> <laughs> And I realized, and of course it was. Oh my gosh, you're right. I need to get off this phone. <laughs> now is the right time to talk about lizards. That's but right. I've, That's great. I've been I've been taught that there's a bit there's good things to be found if you really can just slow it down a bit. 
Yeah, and I think that I mean in your situation, it, it was an enforced slowness. So there is yeah. a kind of uh, was a kind of grieving process to go to go through for that. You, you're grieving for the speed that the type of time that you're familiar with, and you yeah. find yourself cast into this world of slowness, which is, is not the same thing as always being in that world. Which you know, for many many people with uh, certain forms of disability, that's just the world you live in. Yeah. But when you're cast into that, you have to you have to grieve, you have to recognize there's something lost before you can find the joy of that moment. Yeah. It, it, sounds like, uh, it sounds like your son is a very wise little fella. <laughs> Another reason why I'm so glad that we're talking today is because of your friendship and love for the late John Vanier. Right. What an incredible guy. For people who maybe haven't heard of him, would you mind just giving a little, a little snapshot of who he was and, and the life he lived? Well, Jean Vanier um, is the former of what's uh, known as the L'Arche community, which is French for the Ark. Uh, uh, and it's a place of safety in, in the way that it was originally uh, was worked itself out. But Jean Vanier began his life in the Navy, in the Canadian Navy. So what's interesting there is that he began his life in a context of violence and war. Mm. And he became disenfranchised with that and entered into the academy. And he ended up doing a PhD studying Aristotle. So he moved from this context of war and violence into this highly intellectualized context of the academy in Paris. And during that period of his life, he, he explored various facilities and asylums for people with disabilities. Uh, and also, I think people with mental health challenges would, would very often be lumped together. And he was absolutely shocked by the uh, way in which people were treated, by the abject poverty that people lived in, by the violence that they were exposed to, by the abuse. And he, he came to the conclusion that people with disabilities, in this case, intellectual disabilities, what he was really talking about, are some of the most oppressed people in the world. Mm. And so in response to that, he, he didn't begin a new social or political movement. He engaged in a small gesture. And what he did was he took three men with profound intellectual disabilities into his home in Trolley in France and decided to live with them, not as carer and cared for, but as friends in the spirit of the Beatitudes and the friendships of Jesus. Mm. But out of that small gesture, uh, and that, that caring dynamic is really important because it's, it's not a place where people with disabilities are cared for. It's a place where everyone is welcomed and lives together in the friendship. Out of that small gesture, Something like 135 or 136, I can't remember off the top of my head, large communities uh, have grown up across the world, all working with that dynamic of becoming friends and welcoming one another. And so it's that movement from war and violence to highly intellectualized life to a life of, if you like, deep simplicity and timefulness that I think is absolutely fascinating about Jean Vanier's journey. Mm. But Jean Vanier himself is a pretty special person. I have this book club for listeners of this podcast, and our book club pick for this month is Vanier's Becoming Human. Oh, yes. I think in part because I don't think I've ever learned more about this category of precarity than from learning about his life and his works, mm -hmm. how beautiful our loves can be when we assume that everyone including ourselves, are delicate. Yeah. What did you love most about him? Um, 
I love many things about him, but, but what I love most about him probably is his gentleness and his ability to do things that break down social barriers that under normal circumstances are simply not done. So I remember I met him in Birmingham in England two or three years ago, and we had a conference or a discussion for him in a, a monastery or a nunnery rather in Birmingham. Uh, and the nunnery was at the top of a hill and there's a big driveway that goes up to the monastery. And I got out in my taxi and I was walking up the, the driveway and Jean Vanier came down the driveway, grabbed my hand, <laughs> embraced me, and the two of us walked up that, up that driveway holding hands like, um, yeah, I don't know, like a, a, a kind of strange odd couple. Like. Now, under normal circumstances, that wouldn't be my <laughs> norm. <laughs> I'll remember that for when we meet. I won't go right for the double handhold. <laughs> you can try that. And the, uh, but, but what struck me there was, is it was absolutely natural. And I didn't feel inhibited and I didn't feel awkward doing something that I was really normally would be inhibited and awkward. And he had the ability to do that. He had the ability to look at you. You know, sometimes he would look at you for 20, 30 seconds. Nobody looks at one another for that length of time. Yeah. And opening that space and kind of looking so that he could see rather than simply looking so that he'd be. Um, but it's the gentleness of John that's the key. Because one of the things that he draws attention to is that uh, Jesus in the Beatitudes says, I am gentle. You know, so yeah. the, the God who creates the universe and casts the stars into space is gentle. Uh, and he always would challenge you to say, well, what would it look like if we did our politics gently mm. or we did our relationships gently or we did our economics gently? And of course, that sounds ridiculous. However, that's exactly what we're commanded to do. Mm. And so for Jean Vanier, I mean, the essence of who you are is not discovered in your intellect, but it's discovered in your heart. And so he says that the heart is the place of contact and relationship, the place where you engage one another and the place where you engage ultimately God. And so he discusses the practices of Larsh and that kind of way of engaging with people as, as the way of the heart. That we, as we recognize who we are at the level of the heart, so we get past uh, the kind of cultural baggage of intellect that intellect is somehow the most important aspect of who we are and being able to articulate that ourselves in particular ways is what makes us clever and important. So yes. he says, no, it's our hearts that yeah. matter. Yeah. And you access the heart in a very different way from the way that you access the, the, the mind. Yeah. You write so beautifully too about when, for example, in brain injury, there's even a more stark before and after in people's lives. So mm -hmm. that this can be really difficult for people who had a very strong sense of themselves as a, as a brain, an intellect, someone who can engage, and then they are altered somehow. Yeah. I wondered if you could tell me a bit about your friend Tanya and what happened to her and the lived yeah. funeral that helped her think through what she might yet be. Yeah, so well, Tonya um, had a significant brain incident or brain damage via a car crash, which changed her personality in certain ways. And so, for example, certain colours that she used to like, she didn't like certain foods she used to like. So certain things that were kind of central to who she was no longer were available to her in that sense. And one of the things that troubles people with brain damage is continuity of the self. Yeah. That, you know, at one moment you can be 
one way of being in the world and then very brief moment later you can have all sorts of changes and that's why uh, certainly for Tonya uh, the idea of being in Christ is really important because she had such a fragmentation of her story caused by this, this brain injury that actually the continuity that would be if you like the natural continuity wasn't there mm. and so she had a theological position a position to help her to understand who she was before god and who she was as a, as a, a human being and a continuing valued and loved person but that theological position required some way of making it pastorally significant so yeah. because we can know all sorts of things yeah but how do you make it feel real yeah that's exactly right yeah. and so the way that she dealt with that was through ritual and so she had what she describes as a lived funeral mm. and so she gathered together her pastor and her friends and people from her church and they stood beside a, a river and each one of them had a handful of petals, which they held in their hands. And the pastor said some things about Tonya. Her friends said some things about Tonya then and Tonya now. She said some things about Tonya then and now. And so together they celebrated, in that sense, what was and recognised that although things had changed, this new phase in, in Tonya's life was still valuable. Yeah. even though there's a big shift. And then they threw these petals into the river. Yeah. And the symbolism was that as the petals were washed down the river, so her old self, in that sense, was moved into a particular position, clearing way for the new self, which uh, was still being created in that sense because she doesn't know what the future looks like because she can't look back in her history and predict the future. But she can, in community and with the help of her friends, look towards the possibility of a hopeful future. And so it's that ritualizing significant change I think is important. I feel that too sometimes, just the need to get permission to be changed. Yeah. You know, that... You know, you still wish that you were the way you were before. Or, I mean, I, I hear it all the time in, uh, you know, I work in the academy, so it's uh, a gerontocracy. Yeah. So everyone has hip problems. And, uh, right. you know, but we, we hear it in this morning that we have, she said with great respect, her colleagues <laughs> who she loves. That's true. Uh, but we're, we're always never exactly what we were, right? We're just, yeah. we lose stuff all the time. We do. I also really appreciated what you said about over the course of our lives and depending on our circumstances, that we are actually just temporarily abled. We get little, we get moments where we can do things and sometimes those are seasons and they pass as opposed to always imagining there's some perfect ideal self that yeah. we can identify. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, the aging process shows that, that you're always changing and shifting and not always for the better. But also there's just a simple fact in life that you all of us sit in the precipice of some disaster. Yes. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't take very much to change your, your life. I mean, I'm, I'm saying that to you because you, yeah. you've, you've experienced that. But it doesn't take much to change your life. So thinking about a disability as something that we all participate in in different ways is a beginning point. Now, you don't want to be, get to a situation where you say, well, I 
wear eyeglasses, and so therefore I know what it's like to be blind. Sure. But but the fact that you know the the people who have significant disabilities are not radically different from everybody else is a really important beginning point, and that we all are moving in that direction of of becoming differently abled and some of these differences we're welcome but some of them we won't mm -hmm. it's just how we deal with that mm -hmm. when i got sick i found that the church wasn't always uh, my favorite uh, place to be i have no. an amazing pastor and my church was wonderful but it felt like kind of an uncomfortable place to be fragile so i wondered how can the church be more welcoming for those of us who are experiencing something life-changing like an illness or a disability? Yeah. Well, I've been doing some research recently on mental health challenges and how Christians live with severe mental health challenges. And one of the things that's come up in the context of major depression is how reluctant some congregations are to embrace sadness and how the way in which we structure our liturgy really assumes that happiness is equal to, to faithfulness. Yeah. And um, so we've kind of forgotten the tradition of lament, the ability to articulate sadness and brokenness and disappointment in sometimes very difficult language. It's the Psalms of Lament. There's more Psalms of Lament than any other Psalm. And to use that as a way of understanding both what it means to be uh, in the context of worship, but also what it means to be a human being who's going through things that seem deeply unfair and deeply unpleasant. Uh, and we don't really have that language. Uh, and the same thing goes for uh, those of us who live with chronic or enduring illness. There's always an emphasis on healing, but there's very rarely an emphasis on how you can live well and live faithfully with enduring forms of, of illness, be that psychological or be that physical. So I think the beginning point is to recover lament and begin to really think what it means to worship together, bearing in mind the huge diversity of experiences that are in any congregation at any particular moment in time. Yeah, yeah. But also to allow me to take my coffee into the main service, that's also a desire I have. I feel like. Well, in my church, you can take your cat in. <laughs> there are no restrictions. <laughs> and people do. <laughs> but in a way, I think that's a good vision is we're, yeah. we're just we're bringing so many things through these doors and yeah. we need our vision of community to be big enough to see them all. Exactly. I'm so glad we got a chance to do this today. Thank you so yeah. much for talking with me. No, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Kate. Carpe diem, seize the day. I think I always thought that was an imperative about time. Go get him, tiger. Get at it. Speed up already. Choose the passing lane. When I listen to John, I'm reminded to slow down. I need to stop flying by at the speed of anxiety and deadlines and exhaustion. As John writes, God's time is gentle, generous. It moves at the speed of love. In God's time, there's enough. Enough to sit down and draw breath. To look more deeply into the eyes of people who we are lucky enough to love. And feel the second hand of the clock stop ticking. I don't know.
that kind of time suddenly makes me feel a little more human, a little more able to see others who need to live like me in a different time, to live soul to soul, to ask ourselves, is now a good time to talk about lizards? I hope so. So many thanks goes to our amazing partners who make all this possible. The John Templeton Foundation, the Issachar Fund, the Lilly Endowment, North Carolina Public Radio WUNC, Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource, and Duke Divinity School. Not to mention my favorite team, Beverly Abel, Jessica Ritchie, and Be the Change Revolutions. I'd love to have you read along with the Everything Happens Book Club as we dive into Jean Vanier's Becoming Human. Find me online at Kate C. Bowler or at katebowler.com for ways you can participate. And I'd love to hear what you thought of this conversation. It would mean so much if you left a review on Apple Podcasts. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler. 